everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. All right. Good morning, Discovery. Um, We have a couple more weeks left in the month of July, so I want to just recognize if you have been coming to church pretty consistently through about the last few weeks, getting a financial update, you're like, oh my gosh, again, a couple more weeks, and then we're going to be done with this. But I do, uh, it's just such an incredible story to tell. I wanted to make sure that we're in the loop with what we're trying to do and where we're at. So we're in the midst of a little fundraising campaign as we were realizing where we are financially and where we need to be. There was a gap of about $270,000. And if you're somebody who come, calls Discovery home and you have not yet been able to see our floats and finances update that we did at the end of June, I would invite you to take a look at that. We walk through really, really carefully and clearly. Here's why we've gotten in this place. Here's where we think we need to go and what that ask is for. Um, but a few weeks ago, I let you know that we had fundraised the initial $112,000 of that $270,000. Last week, we were at $176,000. This week, we're at $214,000. So we're getting close, yeah. You can be pumped about that. And, And that is a thank you, Lord, for providing that. Um, if you are hearing that for the first time or you, you've heard that before, be like, oh, we got to get on that. No, uh, there's two important things for you to know. Um, it's on the website. You can navigate to any of the things from the QR code on the back of your chair. But if you're like, we're ready, we want to give right now. Uh, the simple ask from that is that if each family who currently gives to Discovery gave a one-time gift of $485, we would, we would be there. Um, so there's a simple thing. Also, if you're like, We'd love to give. We, we just, we got nothing right now. Uh, you can pledge. And one of the fun nudges that we got in the midst of that is the state of Colorado is doing a big tax return that will hit your bank account. If you're a single tax filer, it'll be a $750 bump from the state. If you're a couple that file taxes jointly, it's $1,500. And so that money will come August, September. And if you're like, that's awesome. I don't need that or I don't need all of that. And I'd like to pledge that. If you can pledge that by the end of the month, that will go into this goal. But by the time we get to the end of July, that will be the time where we go, how much have we fundraised? We're done so that we're not doing this every Sunday until Christmas. <laughs> so um, so uh, with that, let's jump into today's message. Um, one of my favorite questions when, uh, as I've been a young life leader over the years, sitting with kids who they might be following Jesus, they might not be, and it's just become a window to me into culturally What do people think about the question, what do Christians do? And especially when you ask a a handful of teenagers, you get a pretty honest response. Um, But if you could put it in a photo, what would you say that Christians do? Here's the most common answers that they gave. Christians pray. Christians go to church. Christians read the Bible. Christians hold up signs at football games and at protests. (laughs) Christians put bumper stickers on their cars. Christians watch late night television and get really weird, doing really weird stuff. This, this if, you, if you could capture it, I mean, what, what for you, if you could capture it in a single photo, what would be the picture that you would say, man, if I could just sum up, what do Christians do? Is it one of these? Is it something else, something less, something more? What do Christians do? And I think to prime us for today, um, there's a picture that I love. It's a picture from the early 1970s. 
And it's from when they first started doing cochlear implants for kids who were born deaf. And this is a photo, a really famous photo that was taken of a kid hearing for the first time. And, and it's just like literally the first sound came through and they captured it. And if there's a photo for me, I mean, there's, there would be a handful, but this would be one that I would say, what do Christians do? This is what Christians do. And I think if you're somebody who's here today checking out the claims of Christ, you're trying to figure out, what do I believe? I, I think that there's so much out there when you look at the church or when you look at Christians and what Christians do, that it just kind of leaves a sour taste in your mouth. And everything that we're going to be talking about this morning is looking at what did Jesus invite and design people who follow him to do? And I hope, if you're checking things out, I hope that as we get into this, you're going, this sounds sweet. This isn't a bitter taste. There's something about this. It it might get muddled in the translation. It might get muddled in the follow-through. But if we go back to the source, and if we see what Jesus was really about all the way along, man, his vision is, is just beautiful for what he wanted for folks. At this point, where we're going to catch up today in Matthew chapter 10, so if you brought your Bible, you can turn there. Jesus has established a handful of things. Uh, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, he established, here's what I'm here for. I'm here to bring and announce the kingdom of heaven. Right after that, he called his first co-workers. He called Peter and Andrew, two brothers, and James and John, two other brothers, some fishermen. He started articulating what it was that people were called to be like in general. And this was in the Sermon on the Mount. It was the first really big discourse, big speech that Jesus gave. Then, after he did that, he said, Here's, I, I don't just talk a big game. This just isn't like fluffy stuff of how the world should be. I actually have the ability to step in and create this world. I have that authority. Authority is a huge deal for Matthew. So he starts doing things. Twelve miracles in a row we get right after he gives the Sermon on the Mount. And as we started last week digging into those miracles, miracle one, some of the scribes, this would be like the college professor, seminary professors get together and they start grumbling. Is he blaspheming? And that was a, they were itching at a death sentence. If you blasphemed in this day, if you were Jewish, man, that was cause to take somebody out. In the next story, we get the Pharisees grumbling as Matthew, the tax collector, is, is given this miraculous forgiveness. And the Pharisees, and these, these are like the pastors at the time, start to grumble. And they say he, that we don't, we don't like what he's up to. Right after that, we get the story where John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, John sends some messengers to Jesus' disciples and is like, are you sure that this is the guy? So tension is mounting for Jesus. There's a lot of people, at least, scratching their heads as they're looking at him. At very worst, starting to pick up rocks and sharp objects and pitchforks and torches. And now he's ready to do something he still has not yet done. He's ready to expand his influence, to take something to the next level. It's discipleship training. And, and if you're uh, new, in the last few weeks, we talked about this a while back, the idea of a disciple, this was, this was part of how you did schooling in this day and age if you were Jewish. A rabbi usually would be approached by somebody who would say, can I, can I come be a student of yours? Can I be your disciple? And the rabbi would have a really important question to answer. Is this somebody that I think could be like me someday? And the funny thing about Jesus is that as he's found his disciples, he's gone looking for them. They didn't seek him out. And so this discipleship training that we're about to get, 
all that we know so far in all of these stories that we've been given is he's called these four fishermen. We just picked up Matthew, this little punk tax collector. And now I think it's really important before we jump in, you have to catch the last, just last couple sentences of chapter nine to really understand what's gonna happen in chapter 10. So it goes like this. As we finish out chapter nine, verse 35, it says, then Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and curing every disease and every sickness. And now, catch this. This is his heart. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So he's gone through all of these villages. He's preaching, he's healing, and then he has this harvest idea that he starts to put out there. There are people in the world who need this so badly, but, but I, I need more. <laughs> I, I, need, I need help getting this message, getting this healing out there. And then he turns to his friends and he says, you guys, like, I'm already praying to God for this. You guys join me in praying to God for this. And we're just going to see what he does. And I like, I love that. I'm sure there was just a snicker in Jesus as he's saying this. Because as he's looking up to heaven, he just slowly starts to turn back to the guys. And he's like, okay, prayer's been answered. And they're, they're looking around like, okay, great. Who are going to be, who, who, who is it? And Jesus is just smiling, like beaming at them. They're it. When we see that the world around us is breaking, I don't think it's hard, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, to look to the sky and go, help. Do something about this. Are you, are you there? Do you care? And I, I just, I love, it would be so, it would be too humanistic to simply say, sometimes you're the answer to your own prayers. That, that's, that puts too much of it on you but I think it's perfectly on the nose to say Christ in us, the authority of Jesus inside of us, that's the answer to so many prayers. And we see it happening here for the first time. Where is Jesus sending you to heal? Where are you called in the world to be this healing touch? And the places where you find yourself looking to the heavens are the places where as you might bring your eyes down, you would find Jesus snickering at you going, it's you, get out there. And then the story continues. And, and so for the first time, we're gonna get a look at who are these cats? Who, who's kind of now been officially included in this list of disciples? And now we're gonna find that in chapter 10. Verse one, it says this. Then Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to cure every disease and every sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First Simon, also known as Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the Cananean, also that Simon the Zealot. And Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Okay, we're gonna pause right there for a second. He gave them authority. Uh, Jesus has just done 12 miracles that established the authority that he t- 
talked about on the Sermon on the Mount, and then he's just, he's handing it off. We just picked up Matthew, like halfway through the last chapter. It hasn't even been a whole chapter, and Matthew is still a tax collector. Like, this, this seems a little reckless to me, right? Like, and, and we only had five of their names, and now we have 12, and Jesus is just like, boom, here's the keys to the car. Like, go do whatever you want. It's, it's amazing. Like, what's, what's Jesus thinking? And I, 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 I man, there's, there's, I don't think it's a recklessness. And, and I think I feel sometimes a little bit called out because how many times in my life have I said, I, I don't think I can do that because I'm not ready enough. I don't have enough schooling. I, I'm not like, I'm just not sure. And you have probably heard this term coined by so many other people, but Jesus does not want the qualified. <laughs> he wants the called. And if you're called to do something, that is qualification in and of itself. I can't tell you how many folks I've wanted to volunteer to go hang out with a teenager over the years that have said, I, I just, I don't know enough. I don't know enough of the Bible. Matthew's a tax collector, like five minutes ago, and Jesus is saying, I'm giving you the authority not just to read your Bible, not just to come to church. I'm giving you the authority to cast out disease and sickness. And it's about to get way more freaky with what he's giving them authority to do. It's remarkable. You do not need a seminary degree to have this kind of authority. That, that's crazy. And, and the other thing that sticks out too, which I think is so fun, when Mark writes his gospel, he's very clear the disciples were sent out two by two when Jesus would send them on these missions. And I don't know if you caught it, but with how Matthew describes these disciples, he says it like this. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, known as Peter, and his brother Andrew. There's those two. We're going to send them out of the door. Then we've got uh, um, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. There's those two. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew. James and Thaddeus. Simon and Judas. You're seeing Matthew go, I'm not going to tell you that they're sent in pairs, but I'm going to tell you about them in pairs. They went out together. And I, I just get so tickled, especially when I, when I look at Simon the Zealot is hanging out with Judas Iscariot. The one who's going to betray Jesus is with the most like ravenously, you know, radical of them all. It's a dynamic group of guys. We've got some small businessmen that own a fishing business all together, Peter, James, John, Andrew. We've got the tax collector guy who everybody is looking at side-eyed. He would have been their tax collector, so we don't like him very much. We've got this zealot, and at the time, zealots, if you have not yet seen The Chosen, um, The Chosen does such a beautiful job with the character of Simon the Zealot, but these were assassins. They, they were trained to, to defend Israel by killing Romans, and Jesus has won the heart somehow of this zealot to say, hey, we're not going to kill people anymore. And I'm sure it offended Simon's ears. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in the first conversation, right after Jesus said something like, love your enemies, that Simon's going, what? <laughs> That's, all of my training is not that. It must have just blown his mind. But it's, it's a super eclectic group of people. And what does he now, he's going to get even more specific because he tells them what to do. In verse 5, these 12, Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Okay, I want to pause there because 
We talk sometimes in the church about the Great Commission, and if you've never heard this before, if we fast forward to the very end of the book of Matthew, we're gonna see Jesus with this same group of guys, minus Judas Iscariot, um, sitting on, on the side of a lake as Jesus is saying, okay, here's what I want you to do. It's eerily familiar to what we're about to read, but when you look at what makes them distinct, it's remarkable what Jesus is making very specific here. He says this, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. So only the Jews. We're only going to Jewish people. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, proclaim the good news. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Cure the sick. Raise the dead. What? Okay, if this to me, this should, this should offend slightly. Like, if you just glance over that, I would say, you've been reading the Bible too long or sitting in church too long. Like, raise the dead. Okay? Cure the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse the lepers. Cast out demons. All of those are things, thematically, that in these 12 miracles Jesus has done, he has just done every single one of those things. Jesus is summing up, here's what I'm here to do. The things that are broken in the world around, we will make right and whole. And I'm not just giving you the keys to do some of the things that I do. I'm giving you the keys to do all of the things that I have been doing. Up into raising the dead. That should bother you, I think, if you're a father. It bothers me. Like, I, I can't tell you the last time I saw somebody raised from the dead because I haven't yet, which bothers me, because I'm like, have I been following Jesus if I haven't seen something like that? Have I been around Christians if I haven't seen something like that? that and I'm not going to fix that tension right now for myself or for you. That, there's something there that's beautiful, and I'm drawn to it, and I want to see it. And I see him giving authority to these guys, but not just to these guys. I think in the Great Commission, we're going to see Jesus developing this for every follower of Jesus. What does that mean? We're going to keep reading. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without payment, give without payment. Take no gold or silver or copper in your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for laborers deserve their food. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who in it is worthy and stay there until you leave. As you enter the house, greet it. If the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. Man. Okay, so why are we just going, if you look at the Great Commission at the end of the book, Jesus starts out by saying, go to all the nations, go everywhere. Why as we're getting to chapter 10 does he say, go only to the Jewish people? What's going on there? Jesus is a part of a bigger story that's been going on for a long time. Jesus made a promise to this particular group of Jewish people long, long before this is happening. And I was funny, I was talking with a friend this week, uh, my friend Lizzie. I was a Young Life kid back in the day, and at one point, I don't remember how, but we made this deal that if she graduated high school, I would go get a, a pedicure with Lizzie. And she graduated probably eight years ago, and we have not yet gotten said pedicure. <laughs> and, it, and I'm waiting. She's now a missionary in Kosovo. 
But when she comes back stateside, I was just talking with her mom the other day, I, I need to go get this pedicure. Now, it would be a little bit messed up if the next time I was around Lizzie and a bunch of her friends, if I said, hey, to all you other friends, at some point, we should all go get a, a manicure together. Let's go get pedicures. Lizzie would be like, you made a promise to me first, and now you're going to go, like, now you're making promises to other people. Either you don't care about me, or you don't care about the promises that you've made before. And I think there's something going on here, too, where Jesus is going, the Old Testament, this whole first chunk of the Bible that we have, it's a story that matters. And God is not one to come along and just say, ah, we're just going to chuck that and keep going. This is a story that Jesus is saying, you know what we're going to do first? First, we're going to follow through on this promise that's been given from the very beginning. We're going to start by going to Lizzie and getting a pedicure. I still don't really know what a pedicure means. It's part of why I haven't gotten one yet. I do know what it means when he says, we're going to make sure the kingdom of heaven breaks through for the people that we promised it to first. But then the other cool thing about this is that when it was promised to the Jewish people, it was promised to them so that they could become a part of the, of the mission to then take that healing out to the rest of the world. It was never supposed to be just for them. It was always supposed to be to them first to then distribute. Now, I wanna just, just for a second, just highlight for you, Jesus called 12 disciples. And if you look at the Old Testament, God very intentionally set up the 12 tribes of Israel. And if this is stuff that you're like, you just lost me, don't worry about it. But if you're tracking, God set up those 12 tribes of Israel to fulfill a promise to them so that they can then take that healing out to the world. And now in this moment, Jesus is going, I'm gonna call 12 to me and I will give them a healing first. We heard Matthew's just little story last week, but Matthew now knows, and Jesus even says it here, take what's been given to you, you received without payment. I healed you, now go heal other people. This, this is just, it's just the continuation of a story that God's been telling for hundreds and hundreds of years. The mission of God, which Jesus lives out so beautifully, is God saying to you, let me heal you first. And in the process of doing that, we're not done. I'm healing you first so that you can join me on this mission to go be a part of the healing of the world around. It's beautiful. And go, this, this news that he wants them to take, it's a really short sermon. It's really easy to memorize. If you've never memorized a whole sermon, here's a really easy one. The kingdom of heaven has come near. That's it. That's the whole thing. You can memorize the whole Bible and in just saying, love your neighbors as yourself. You can sum up Jesus' best sermon by saying the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's great. What does that mean? And, and I think it's all right here. What does it mean that the kingdom of heaven has come near? I gotta think that for Bartholomew, rolling into his first house and knocking on the door, somebody answers it and he says, the kingdom of heaven has come near. And they're like, who is this guy? Is he selling vacuums? What's going on? And the longer he stays, the more he goes, do you need anything? Is there anything that I can do for you? Do you have anybody, in, in particular, do you have anybody who's sick? I can tell, like, I can't imagine getting into a headspace. You go, has anyone died? Do you have any dead people lying around? I just, I'm just following orders from my boss. And the longer he stays and the longer the conversation goes on, that somebody says, yeah, actually, we, we've got a sick kiddo. And if we're looking back at these stories of Jesus, they say, we have, we have a servant that's living in the house 
across the street, and yeah, we could actually use something. <laughs> and the audacity of these guys. They've been given the authority of Jesus, and I, it seems to me like they believe that this is true. And, and we're gonna get to this in a second. We don't actually get a lot of stories then that come out of this. This story will end, and the next line that we get is, and then Jesus continued preaching and teaching. <laughs> and so, did Bartholomew heal people? How about Thaddeus, how'd he do? But there's no question in my mind that Jesus is dead serious and there's frankly no question in my mind that these guys go out and they do what they were asked to do and there's no question in my mind that they met some sick people and that they met some dead people and that the words, the kingdom of heaven has come near, people were like, great. What does it look like? It looks like a healed kid. It looks like somebody who had leprosy who was kicked out of the family and out of the community. It looks like bringing them back in. That's what that sermon means, but it's not just words, it's actions, it's getting in there, it's doing something. Mm. I think that in our culture today, especially when I talk to Young Life kids about what do Christians do, I, I think that there is so, there's such incredible work being done that goes unseen but how many hospitals are named after Christians or Christian stories? How many orphanages across the globe? How many adoption agencies? How many folks who are willing to touch the untouchable and get into the fields of mental health? How many of those things are spheres that are owned and operated and run by people who read this and went, you know what Christians do? They get involved with the sick because the kingdom of heaven has come near and we gotta put things back together. And it's not from some condescending place of I'm better than you or I have answers figured out that you don't. Frankly, it comes from this place of I received freely. I, I, was, I was put on a journey back home and now I'm in this place of wanting to put others on that same journey. That's what it's about. So uh, as this continues, this, this mission, we get all of these bullet points that Jesus walks through. Make sure that you're curing folks. Make sure that you're going to the, Jewish, the Jew, Jewish folks only. Proclaim the good news. Don't take money in extra clothes. Stay with people where you go. But then, and we're not gonna get into the reading of these parts, but as this chapter goes on, he gets into even more of here's what you should come to expect. Persecution, betrayal, even from your family, death, you should expect to be hated. And then he has this final expectation that for those who persevere, they, should, they will be saved. This is one heck of a sales pitch, man. Like, you, you had me at cure sickness. Now all of a sudden I'm backpedaling a little bit because this doesn't sound like that much fun. This is what the first mission is all about. Jesus is setting up for his friends. You're joining a story that's been around for hundreds of years a story that begins with you being put back together and then being invited to put the world around you back together. But the world is not gonna receive that very well. And it's no small irony that it's coming right on the heels of these scribes and these Pharisees and John the Baptist saying, are you sure you're who you say you are? And at the very best, they're scratching their heads and at the very worst, they're picking up rocks and sharp objects. Jesus is letting his disciples know, this is my story. This is what's gonna happen to me. This is what I'm facing, persecution, betrayal, death. 
I will be hated. And those who persevere will be saved. Man. Now, uh, I want to grab two other verses just real quick before we start landing the plane on today. One of them is just super weird and funny to me. Jesus, in, in one sentence, just takes a quick trip to the zoo, and you're going to have trouble figuring out, okay, what animal am I supposed to be? This is some weird personality test. It says this in verse 16. See, I'm sending you out like sheep into the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Am I a sheep or a wolf or a serpent or a dove? There's just so many things going on right here. What is your point, Jesus? What are you getting at? And I just, I think this is so cool in the metaphor that he's building here of what he's really trying to say to these disciples and to you and me. The first thing that he says is, you don't have to decide if you're a sheep or a wolf. You're a sheep. If you're following me, you're a sheep which is not super, there's not a lot of, of mascots out there that are like, we're the sheep, unless you're from Fort Collins High School and your mascot is the lambkin, in which case, I'm so sorry that they did that to you. <laughs> sheep can't defend themselves at all. I've never seen a sheep attacked by a wolf, but the rumor is when a sheep gets attacked by a wolf, like a moose is just gonna like jab a, jab a hoof and the wolf is gone. Like, animals have defense mechanisms, except for sheep. Sheep will see a wolf coming and they'll just stare. Like, that's their defense mechanism. Like, you, if you're a sheep, you have no natural defense mechanisms. You don't even have a top row of teeth. Like, that's how bad it is. And Jesus is saying, you're like a sheep being sent out among wolves. You are defenseless. And man, if you can't feel the foreshadowing that Jesus is saying there, I am also like a sheep being sent before wolves. I have no defense. Be like me. Do not be overly intimidated by that truth. Now, if you are a sheep, how should you go into those places? Well, a smart sheep, if you're really smart and shrewd and wise, a smart sheep is going to hide because you don't want to get eaten by a wolf. If, if you're a silly sheep that's too innocent, you're just going to go walking around wherever you want to go, including right into the wolf's mouth. And that's also dumb. So Jesus is saying you don't want to be so smart and over-engineer your life so much that you never get out there and do anything. But you also don't want to just go willy-nilly and do whatever. You've got, you got to be smart about this. So be smart, but not too smart, which is kind of an unhelpful thing to say. But it's the point that matters. And for Jesus, he's going, how can I capture this? Be, be wise like a snake, but be as innocent as a dove. In the homes that you go to, in the ways that you offer this gift and this authority that's been given, do not walk around all willy-nilly, but don't you dare outsmart this whole process either. And then he puts this big exclamation point at the end with this last thing that he says. In, in, well, we're not going to read this part today, but littered throughout, one of the things he says, I think it's in verse, uh, I think it's in verse 12. He says, don't forget that God knows the numbers of hair on your head. Like God is intimately involved in this thing. The command, do not be afraid, shows up three times in this discourse alone. It is intimidating to be a sheep amongst wolves. It is hard to know when am I supposed to go and when am I supposed to hide? Jesus is saying, do not be afraid in the midst of it. Don't be silly. Don't over-engineer it. Shoot for that middle ground and do it like I do it. And then we get this last verse that we're going to land on today. 
Matthew 10, verse 39, he says this. Those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. This sounds a lot like Yoda. What does that mean? But I think Jesus is saying discipleship fundamentally if, I'm, if he, Jesus, is looking at you going, I think you could be like me someday. Part of what that means is you have to stop just being like you. You have to be willing to become like me. And in the things that I do, and the things that I say, you have to trust me. You're going to have to lay down everything that you want. And I know that that's gonna sound backwards but it's almost like picking up a cross. It's almost like saying, I'm going to choose to die to myself and my wishes and my dreams and my hopes, which may sound like I'm just giving up everything and I'm, like, I'm just falling into this hole. And Jesus is saying, if you do that, if you give up your hopes and your dreams, this life that you want and that's laid down, you're not stuck down there. You give those things up and oh my goodness, do I have something to offer you. I have the life that you were always meant for. I have hopes and dreams that you didn't even have the guts to think about. If you lose your life, you will find your life. I think another way to look at this is all throughout the story, Matthew's been making this pretty strong case that Jesus is God himself, the author of life, the one who knows without question what to do. And as Jesus is giving these commands to his disciples and telling them, here's exactly what I want you to do. If they repeat back, you know, I, I just don't want to do that. I don't feel like doing that. I don't want to do that. I don't dream about doing that. It's a sign of them saying, I, I would just rather be God of my life. Which I think for us is such a strong warning and good words if you think that you know how to live life better than the one who authored all of life, you're in trouble and you're invited to lose that and to pick up Jesus and to consider the life that he's called you into. And what does that mean moving forward? Like we said earlier, we don't know now what happens in this story. We don't get the stories of Bartholomew and Thaddeus and all these guys going out. Are they curing the sick? Are they casting out demons? The other thing that I love in this story is that still yet to come in the story that Matthew's writing, he's going, we're gonna feed 5,000 people and it's gonna blow the disciples' minds right out of their heads. Not long after that, we're gonna feed another 4,000 people. They haven't yet seen Jesus walking on water and that will like melt their brains and doubt and uncertainty riddle every single one of those stories. They're constantly asking, who is this? How did he do this? What's going on here? After Jesus has given them the authority to do these things, and they've seen all these other things happen, I think this story that Matthew is writing is a story that embraces doubt. So if you're hearing all of this today going, this sounds like pretty wild stuff, super Christian type stuff. I'm struggling with the doubt and the uncertainty of it all. I can tell you the names of 12 other guys who I'm so sure were feeling the exact same thing. I can also tell you that this story embraces progress and development and learning and growing and curiosity. And if you keep not getting it, there will be a nudge from Jesus for sure into something next. 
But when Jesus gives his authority, these diets don't automatically have everything figured out. And you don't have to either. That's cool. I'm going to bring out the band as we wrap up my part for today. But I, I think it's important to know these instructions from Matthew were really specific. Matthew could have waited. If he wants disciples of Jesus to know what to do, he could have just axed this whole portion and waited for the Great Commission. But he doesn't do that. Why? I think it's because there's a context that he wants you to know. In the Great Commission, he'll say, go to all the nations, teaching them everything I've taught you. What has he taught them? For sure, the words. But sometimes I think the Great Commission can become so cerebral and academic. I think here we see that when Jesus is giving this Great Commission, go and teach them everything. One of the things that he's saying is, do you remember what I taught you when I gave you the authority? Do you remember what I taught you about the sick and the lepers and the possessed and the dead? Do you remember Go do those things. And Matthew, right in the middle of the gospel, wants any reader who's trying to follow Jesus to know that is implied in your mandate. Every disciple of Jesus is a missionary. So, I showed you this picture at the beginning of the day of our time. Um, And I wanted to end with a poem that was written by a doctor who was sitting with a patient um, She's a writer too, but she was sitting with a patient, this woman who had just heard for the first time uh, the sound. And she wrote this poem right after that. And again, I think if there's something of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, I don't want to glance over too quickly to go right to, well, it's all about other people. Fundamentally, the story begins with, you received freely, so go give freely. And as you hear the words of this poem, I would love for you to put yourself in the seat of the, of the person who has not been able to hear, of the deaf person. What would it be like to be healed? And as you feel and experience that through the words, what does it feel like to then be a part of this for other people? I think in these doctor's words, we find what it was like for her to realize her own stuff, and then to see it played out in the life of another. This is called Hearing for the First Time by Carol Bromley. It sounds very, very high, and she sobs for the joy of it, for the reds and the blues of it, the shock, the hullabaloo, the kerfuffle, the sturm und drang, the sudden ice cream and a shake, the sherbet fireworks burst. It's just amazing, she cries, her face in her hands. I'm going to say the months of the year And she hears them shaking January, February, March. April overwhelms her. It's like never having seen a bird or the sea or the stars, never tasting an orange, like living all your life in a cave and coming out into the light, the sun on your face. Afterwards, she walks by the tine, daren't go alone for fear of the birdsong, the traffic, the ship's hooter will be too much. They are not. It's like falling in love. If you could pick a picture of what a Christian does, what do they do? We pray and we go to church. Sometimes we put bumper stickers on our cars. (laughs) But Christians, first and foremost, they get healed. We talked about last week, they get forgiven. And as we're talking about this week, then they get sent out into the world as we pray and look to the heavens and go, God, what will you do? 
And there are times when as your eyes come back to the ground, you'll find the gaze of Jesus and a smirk on his face saying, I want you to go heal the sick. I want you to go raise the dead and cast out demons. People who have been kicked out and marginalized in society, I want you to go bring them back in. That's what Christians do. And again, if you're checking out the claims of Christ, I think this gets muddled sometimes in our world today. And I also think if you look closer, you'll find that this story is not just something that happened 2,000 years ago with 12 guys. It's a story that has continued to this day, and it's happening right now, and you're invited to be a part of it. We're going to take some time just to, to receive this and to sing and to be just grateful. And if this is your story, I would say just sing your lungs out. You have been given something freely. Enjoy it and then give it away. If you're able, let's stand and sing.